I'll just say one thing. A question like that, when is it okay to speak up, to call people to account for what you think is an error you perceive in your local church? When do you be quiet and just act submissively and supportively? That is just an unanswerable question from outside. And so all I can do is point you to a process to arrive at an answer rather than giving you the answer. And the process is to plead with Christ for a spirit of discernment and to soak your minds in the Bible so that you're not conformed to this age with all of its pride and all of its self-exaltation. And rather, you are humble and lowly and loving and kind and tender and sensitive and wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he'll let you know when. Next question. Will you talk about the, a little bit about the judgment seat of Christ? On the one hand, it seems like we're going to get rewarded for things that have been only produced in our life by God's grace and the spirit. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, lose rewards for things that have been covered by his blood and the resurrection. Lose reward. Oh, oh, I think I see what you mean. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a complicated question. Um, see if I can take it a piece, a piece at a time. Um, I think it is right to say, not from that text only, um, Romans 14 and the parable of the talents, and Second uh, Corinthians three fourteen to seventeen. This slight momentary affliction is working for us eternal weight of glory. As though there's a correlation between what we suffer here and what we benefit from there. I think there are different levels of reward. I do believe that. Not every not everybody does. Uh, and they would base their view on the parable of the. Um, uh, the, the guy who comes in works one hour and the guy works ten hours and they both get the same thing. So there, there's no difference in rewards. But I, I don't think you need to push that parable to say there are no distinctions at all. I think it means that both can have the same blessing of being all there, get all of Jesus and so on, and that what the rewards are is uh, leaning on Edwards and others they are different capacities for enjoying the whole Christ that every believer gets in heaven. Um, now, your question uh, is, we're going to get rewards for what grace worked within us. And I think that's exactly right, which is why we will cast our crowns at his feet. So he puts a crown on us and we take it off and put it back at his feet. And in that little that little picture that we get out of a hymn, uh, both truths are stated. We did a good thing. There was real virtue in it. I believe in virtue. The virtue happened to come ultimately from God. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead the good shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in you 
that which is pleasing in his sight. So who did the work? He did the work in you, through you. But you did it. You did it. You did a good thing. And he'll say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You were lean, faithful. You're leaning on him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for he is the one who's at work in you. So you do it because he's doing it. So when you get to the judgment with that dynamic of, of sanctification having been operative, how does he speak appropriately about you and him in that moment? That's judgment. And he does it by rewarding you in whatever that stands for, by saying what you did was good. I see it as good. I liked it. I approve of it. I value it. I delight in it. And he, he finds a way to say that. But then you know, and he knows, and everybody in heaven knows, you wouldn't have done it if he hadn't enabled you to do it. And so you've got to find a way at that moment to render back to him the praise he just gave to you. It actually does say praise in Romans 2.25 and in 1 Peter 1.8 that those the true circumcision get their praise from God, not from man. God praise me? Yikes! That's another theology. Where'd that come from? And that's the dynamic right there. I think, yes, praise in the sense that he'll say, John, that you stayed with your wife all those years? Amen. John, that you stayed with the church through tough times? John, that you brought your kids up and read the Bible with them every day? That was good. John, in other words, he'll take all the, all the C pluses, say, to A minuses in my life, and he keeps them in a file. And he takes all the D minuses and especially the S and he burns them up in the cross. And and so I'm only going to get I'm going to lose reward for those things. I'm not going to I'm not going to be punished for them. Jesus got punished for them, but I'm not going to get any reward for them. They're all in a round file and went poof at the cross. But he keeps this other file of called sanctification works that he's working in me. And, and some of those are really mediocre, you know, because I got them all contaminated while he was working on me and I just messed them all up with my remaining indwelling sin. And and some I, I did all right. My, I was given a moment of, of pure heart and, and I did something without a lousy motive, almost. I, I agree with J.I. Packer and the Puritans that I never did a good deed in my life for which I don't have to repent. So I, I think there won't be any A pluses. Zero A pluses. Jesus got all A pluses. I got no. I get no A pluses. Very few A minuses, probably. Like this talk here, these talks. My guess is a lot's going to go up in smoke uh, when I get to to the judgment seat. He's going to say, "Man, if you if you'd really prayed this much, or if you'd really been this less self preoccupied with your theology and more preoccupied with Jesus. And if you just go right down the line, lay my heart bare, show all the crud in there and say things would have gone better. But I got this file over here. You did a few things right. It's like when he comes to the churches of, of, of the seven churches in Revelation. This I have against you and this I like. <laughs> I just think that's the way it's going to be. Now, I don't know if that helps him. Does that solve the problem? I, I, I think it's right to reward us in that way for things that he worked in us. And I think it's right that we not be rewarded for things that the cross consumed. Uh, which side are we on? Who's got the microphone? Yeah. Um, I was just curious as to uh, your um, view on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Mm-hmm. 
uh, with those who have once been tasted the powers of the age to come. I think that person is is uh, well. Let's do it this way. Um, the Bible. The issue there, if you don't have it fresh in your mind, is whether or not um, eternal security or the perseverance of the saints can stand in view of what happens to the man in Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10. And there you have a man who's, who's tasted the powers of the age to come. He's tasted the Holy Spirit. And uh, he, he basically makes shipwreck of his faith. He, he's like a field that's been watered and he brings forth thistles and it's good for nothing to be cursed and, and uh, trampled away. And so my view is if that man does that, if he apostatizes decisively, he never was saved. And the tasting is a real tasting, but not a full born again experience. Now, I hope that's not just theologically dictated and I'm doing eisegesis there, dumping my theology into that text. The reason I don't think I am is from chapter 3. So let me just point this out. Most of you who've been wrestling with these kinds of things know about this verse, but some of you may not know about this verse in Hebrews. It's a very important verse. 3.14. comes right after the exhortation to exhort one another every day, encourage one another every day, uh, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he says, and the tenses of the verbs here are all important. For we have become partakers of Christ. Now, that's a past event with a present experience. We have become and are now partakers of Christ. And then there's a condition. If... We hold fast the beginning of our assurance to the end. Now, reverse it and tell me what it would read if I started it like this. If we do not hold fast our assurance firm to the end, therefore, what? We had not. Have not, not cease to be. See the difference? It would be one theology to say, if I don't hold fast, I stop being a partaker. It's another theology to say, if I don't hold fast, I never was a partaker. And that's what this verse demands, the second one. Which is why I think the writer to the Hebrews believes in the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. Now, if you asked it, well, what in the world was happening in chapter 6 then? What was that experience that's described as uh, tasted the good word of God? Verse 5, powers of the age to come. Verse 4, enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. I think the best picture of those people is Matthew 7 at the end where they say, didn't they're at the judgment. They say, didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we teach in your name, cast out demons in your name. And I you know what I think the answer of Jesus would be there is, yes, you did. 
You cast out demons in my name. You did many mighty works in my name. I granted you power to do miracles, and you were never saved. Now, you've got to have a category in your head for that. In other words, supernatural things can be allowed and performed by the providence of God in the lives of unregenerate people. You might say, oh, that's just the power of the devil, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Or maybe it's like Job. The devil, yes, but God's got the leash. He can pull him as he wishes. So that he comes to Job and he kills his kids. And Job says, the Lord took away. Or it says in chapter 2, verse 8. Satan afflicted him with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And Job says to his wife, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? At the hand of the Lord? And so maybe we have to be very, I mean, there are complex things. God's ways of working here in terms of signs and wonders is not easy to sort out. Nothing is very Clear. I, 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 if I see a sign and a wonder, a healing, say, or somebody falls over, so-called slain in the spirit, or, or laughter, like in Toronto, or um, a casting out of a demon, supposedly, I do not immediately jump to any conclusion, positive or negative. I'm, I'm a, I have critical openness, is the way I describe my view towards these things. I'm critically open. I don't rule them out. I don't say, oh, satanic stuff going on here. That's not obvious to me at all. I think God is free to do whatever he wants to do in that regard. And so I'm going to look for evidences of holiness, evidences of Christ-centeredness, evidences of the esteem of the word of God. As long as we're on charismatic stuff, and I'm getting way afield from whatever the question was. I forgot even now. Oh, yeah, Hebrews 6. But I'll go ahead and maybe cancel out about five other questions with this one. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, charismatic. Oh, why is on charismatic? <laughs> oh, yes, here we go. If you perceive that there's some group doing something strange, say, somebody says, what do you think of that? You know, um, I don't feel obliged from my distance, say, of 1,600 miles or something between Minneapolis and Pensacola or something like that. I don't feel obliged to, to make any judgments. I simply say, okay, here's what I would do if I were there. I'd get up and I'd preach God-centered, glorious, Calvinistic, reformed theology and see how they responded. And if they respond poorly, I'd say something bad's happening here. And if they respond positively, I'd say, he who is of God, hears the words of God. In other words, you can you don't have to you don't have to be God here. Just preach the word of God. Another way to do it, if they don't let you preach, is check their preaching out. And what I found in some of these places, and I've been to lots of them because I I'm open to this kind of thing. 
I've been to lots of where the preaching is simply a pump used to prime the ministry time. Just just take about 15 minutes to get the people ready and then we'll do some prophecy here. And you grew up in so and so and your wife had a red shirt in 1953. And 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 now, see, I don't I don't I don't say that can't be happening. That cannot be happening. I say that 15 minute theology light is going to damage this church over the long haul. Let's fix that. And you know what happens? If you fix that, other things get fixed too. That's my, that's my strategy with regard to signs and wonders and charismatic thing. I, I'm not on a crusade against the charismatics. I'm on a crusade for God-centered theology. And I find that if, if you're willing to promote God and the whole counsel of God, many charismatic people absolutely love it. And they realize what they've been starving for all their lives. They don't want to give up some of their energetic aspects of emotional engagement and worship. And I'm not eager to create a church where they have to. And so I think my little strategy, and you don't have to buy it, is, is probably rescuing as many people from the downside of the charismatic movement as going on a crusade against charismatics would. Okay, now that nobody even asked that question, and there I am talking about it. So I believe it teaches eternal security in Hebrews. You got a who's got the microphone? Just stand up. There it is. Okay, thank you. I have just a question coming from Bob Jones, and I hate to admit that I did, but um, I have a good question about secondary separation. Where do you stand as far as that goes, and as far as maybe people who don't agree with? Covenant theology and more along the dispensational end and music and you know how Bob Jones takes that strong stance as far as a little bit. I so. don't. I don't know if I'm on the inside to know how everything is articulated, and I'm not even sure I could give a good definition to secondary separation. Would you like to define it for me so I don't answer the wrong question? I could try, but. Going along the area of separating from people that do not separate from Roman Catholic or Muslims or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I'm not even very good at primary separation. (laughs) But liberals think I am. So it's a funny thing, you know. I'll just give you a real concrete example. Um... I don't know if I should do this or not. There was a there was a big twenty thousand person prayer event in the dome the Sunday night after the calamity on September eleven of evangelicals. And uh I was called to ask if I would participate in, in being one of the leaders. And I have met and prayed with just about every stripe of of Christian human being there is. I'm not eager to pray with those who won't pray in the name of Jesus. That's just why do that. But if if people pray in the name of Jesus, I generally go there because how can that hurt? You know, because God might teach somebody something in that moment. But I asked, will so and so be speaking? And they 
The answer was he was. And I said, probably not. Because that issue for me that we disagree on is big enough to separate over. I don't think he should be in our denomination. I don't think he should be teaching at our school. I figured out who it is. Uh, so, so there's an example of where I'm willing to draw the line. Now, there's lots of people who do not feel that way about him. That's secondary, right? So how do I relate to those people? Well, I'm not about to run away from them. I'll be all by myself in the middle of the wilderness, you know. Um, I, I guess I just don't see things as clearly as, as maybe some of the fundamental brothers and sisters do. Let's take music for an example. You raised music and somebody else raised music the other night. Um, I put, I, I'll tell you the question I heard. Um, you said, Piper, we should be radically countercultural. So, if we're going to be radically countercultural, how come we're singing these kinds of songs that we sang last night? Which are taken over as folk ballads from the world, basically. Tunes. So, I think about that sort of thing a lot. And here's uh, here's a rough answer. A couple of pieces to it. Um, When you call for radical, countercultural allegiance to Jesus, you got to choose your battles. All you have to do is just look at me. This is not radically countercultural. This is pure conformity to what I thought might be Southern expectation. <laughs> this, my hair is not real long. That's a cultural expectation. Um, I use a Palm Pilot. That's cultural. I dial 911, that's cultural. I drive a car, that's cultural. I speak English, that's that's cultural big time. I'm about the most non-countercultural person in the world, right? In other words, you choose your battles. I'm going to speak English. I'm going to dress basically like an American. I'm going to uh, eat almost exactly the same stuff every pagan in America eats. I'm going to listen to public radio, NPR, which is what most upper-scale pagans in Minneapolis listen to. I, I can make a list a mile long of my conformities to American culture. Now, why, why? Here I am calling for a radical countercultural life. Why don't I do the Amish thing? You know, drive buggies and and wear black hat and long beard and just figure out every way I can to look as weird as I possibly can. It's because I choose my battles strategically as best I can. I'm after a generation to be martyrs. I don't care what they're wearing when they die. And I don't care what song they sang before they died. And I... I'm invited to go to Alive in Ohio next summer. 40,000 teenagers. You'd call it a rock concert, a Christian rock concert. 
They want me. 55-year-old, thin hair on the top, wear a tie, John Piper, to speak to children who are all caught up in this music. So now, should I be the do the separatist thing here and say, oh, no, 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 no. That would encourage that. I accept it. I'm going to go there. Center stage, Saturday morning, and talk to 20,000 kids about laying their lives down for Jesus. And if I, if I can, if I can get, if, see here, this is exactly my same approach to the charismatic thing. If I can get God-centeredness from the inside exploding with a full or biblical theology, you know what? In due time, the peripheral things like forms of worship and forms of music will begin to change in their lives. And that's the only way I'd want them to change anyway. One of the problems with fundamentalism is, and, and I have high respect, and, and think that probably it's healthy that we have fundamentalism as it is in America. But w- one of the things I have a problem with is that as you try to clamp down on the, the um, secondary matters of conformity to the culture, like music forms or whatever, the constraints are so heavy from the outside, you run the risk of a lot of comp- comp- hypocrisy on the inside. Now, I'm willing to risk hypocrisy. This, and I think my whole last message was a risk of hypocrisy. Because here I am calling you to be excited about Jesus. And you may walk out and well, I guess I better look excited for John Piper. I guess I better really appear passionate because he says you're, you're supposed to be passionate. So all I did was create a bunch of hypocrites. I'm willing to make that risk. Because I think the essence is at stake. I don't think the essence is at stake with regard to forms of music. A little bit is at stake. And yes, it, it probably is true that if you sing a certain kind of music and cultivate a certain kind of emotional dependence on the music, it will damage theology in the long run. I'm willing to say that. But if you say, now how should we solve that? Should we work from the outside by creating constraints, by drawing lines at certain kinds of beat or certain kinds of rhythm or certain kinds of energy. I mean, how in the world would you do that? It'd be so artificial. Or do you work from the inside with a radical God-centered theology and more and more biblical faith and hope that the spiritual taste buds will make them feel awkward about certain sensualities and, and certain expressions of sound? That's that's my that's my strategy. So I gave an example earlier in the Q&A about a kind of holy ostracism. So I believe separatism of a kind is a biblical doctrine. But I guess I I draw my lines and my battlegrounds in different places. And frankly, if if you ask and and what should be our attitude towards one another in that regard, I'm not going on a crusade against fundamentalism. I, mean, I hope it didn't sound like that. I went to Fuller Seminary, which is now anything but fundamental, and it wasn't when I was there. And I came out of a fundamentalist home. My dad went to Bob Jones. He was on the board until the big crisis in 57. So I grew up in a home hearing with all those standards. They were my standards. And, and I still keep a lot of them. A teetotaler to this day. Never puffed on a cigarette to this day. Feel uncomfortable in a movie theater to this day. And those kinds of things. I'm, I'm, I, that's all in my blood. But when I went to Fuller, 
and heard men who were probably 10 years older than I was dumping on fundamentalism, it sounded very childish to me. It sounded adolescent to me. Kicking against the spurs. Never have grown up yet. Come on, grow up. This is, this is where you guys have come from. Show some respect. Show some appreciation. Look for the common ground. Don't make fun. Don't use innuendo. Don't always be doing the put down. Why? What good does it do? How are you going to win? What world are you going to impress? So I'm, I'm not out to say anything ugly about Bob Jones or whatever the Central Baptist in my. In fact, I'll just give you a little, little teen story here. Um, the Bob Jones counterpart, and it's not exactly, is Pillsbury College and Central Seminary in Minneapolis. Here I am downtown. I'm sort of off limits. You know, folks like that put me off limits. And this church, I gather, is one of those too. Um, and I'm not being out of shape by that because you know what? Those students sneak over. <laughs> and now Pastor McLaughlin calls me up on the phone and says, let's get together. Because I went to his church. I had, a, I had a, a vacation day. I went to his church. He saw me. He absolutely almost fell over. He couldn't believe I would come worship with them. And I was there to worship. I wasn't there to snoop or anything. I thought I might hear a good sermon for a change. I've been to so many liberal churches on vacation to see what they function. I want to hear something worthwhile. I thought I might hear it at a fundamental church. And I did. It was a great sermon on Acts 2. He calls me on the phone. He says, can we get together? He came over, brought one of his systematic theology teachers with me. He said, look, I just admit you're having a big influence on our students. We like a lot of what you're doing. Can we talk about a few of our differences? I said, yes, yes, yes. This, this, this what ought to be happening. And that's part of the fact that I think over the years, I haven't, I haven't been shooting at these guys. I, I did. That's enough, probably. That's enough. That's enough. I got all kinds of stories to tell you. But I'm, I just want to give you a flavor there. Sorry if it didn't get close enough on the exacts. I just don't understand enough. We'd have to get down to texts, I think, to really make progress on that separation thing. Where are we now with the microphones? We've got ten minutes. In your message, you um, made reference to what uh, I think Wayne Grudem would call the unconverted evangelical. And uh, in terms of someone who's been presented with the gospel, but there's, you know, obviously they're not embracing the full delight in the Lord. Um, my question would be uh, either in your opinion or what you do at uh, Bethlehem in terms of uh, altar calls. Yeah. And, and how they're presented. Mm -hmm. Just if you could speak to us as yeah. leaders, I know that's an issue that's Absolutely. sometimes hotly debated. in the church. So interestingly relevant because at, at the, I came down here. We had just the sweetest two hours with my dad and my sister. Uh, was it was yesterday, Monday? OK, Monday morning. And uh, we had breakfast together. Beverly made grits and biscuits and eggs for this southerner who hasn't eaten right for 20 years. And uh, and that was the question she asked me. She said, I've always wondered, Johnny, you do you do invitations because she was asking out of the context of her church. She goes to Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. Good, solid church. And uh, they don't, which she grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Of course, she had invitations every Sunday and people join the church just like that. Boom. You know, experience, baptism, letter, whatever. And uh, just fill it out and let's all vote right here. And uh, 
And she wondered, if it, how do you do it? And I said, well, I think that approach towards immediate admission into membership and the immediate acceptance of somebody's statement of where they are spiritually produces a church with 600 in attendance and 1,500 on the rolls. And the 600 in attendance are half carnal and probably not converted. So I'm not interested in this system. I want a better system. So over the years, I've thought through. Now, I want people converted in my services, but I'm going to preach to the saints. I think you preach the same gospel to saints and sinners. It's the same thing. Believe, believe, trust him, trust him, trust him. He's great. He's good. He's worthy. Trust him. Unbelievers can understand that. And believers need to hear that every Sunday. So um, here's what we do. To join Bethlehem Baptist Church, you must go to a class called Ask. Five hours, either taught five Sundays in a row on Sunday morning or two hours on Friday night and three hours on Saturday over and over and over again. And I'm constantly inviting people to these classes. To get there, you can go through a class called Getting Acquainted with Bethlehem. Learn all about our theology, about our ministries, about our mission, and so on. And that's a 14-week series, and it just rolls over all the time. Every Sunday that's being taught on Sunday morning, youth ministries, music ministries, outreach ministries, social ministries, whatever. And you just go and find out more. Ask your questions. So people come to church. They'll be there a month, two months, a year, three years sometimes. That's terrible when that happens. But you can't make people go away, and you can't make them join. Um, <laughs> So they go through that. They find out enough. Finally, God gets them. I'll preach one, you know, tough sermon on membership and how they ought not to be audience and participants. And, and then the ask class fills up. And they go through that. And then they get interviewed by the elders. He, an elder and his wife or two elders meet with everybody who wants to join. They interview them, ask them about their personal experience with Christ. And that, do they have any problems with the affirmation of faith? What are they, etc. And if they say, we're on, and the elders approve, then they sign. The church covenant, not in blood, but almost they just sign the church covenant, which commits them to uphold the doctrine and live a certain life. And then they stand in front of the church and say out loud, I do to the covenant when I read them the paragraphs. Then we take their picture and put on the bulletin board and now they're members. That's the process for joining. Now, with regard to ends of services. And seeing what God's doing in the services, I do not have an invitation usually. I almost always do during missions week, um, but I don't every Sunday. I can remember as a teenager growing up that every time it started, people start putting on their coats. They start putting on their coats. Here you are at one of those solemn moments in history, supposedly. Everyone's shuffling around, putting on their coats because it's just worn out. Out. So I, I don't do that every Sunday. And here's what we do. We, we either, I just pray after a moment of silence and dismiss with a benediction or we sing a song and then we have prayer teams. They've been trained. You'd call them counselors maybe. They get badges, prayer team. And they're trained to pray with people about their sickness and their depressions and their marriage and their job problems and their lost condition. Or whatever the problem is. In other words, this is a very broad, general opportunity. We have 30 minutes between our three services. And then the last one goes forever. 
and um, and they stand there. There's a team there. There's a team there. And I stand here for 20 minutes after the service, and I pray with people every Sunday. And I'm there for 45 minutes to an hour after the third service praying with people. And they are they, they usually end before I do because a lot of people want to talk to me that don't want to talk to them. And so we're wide open. I just I just say, come on up after the service. Anything at all, we'll talk, we'll pray, we'll deal with what you're dealing with. So last Sunday, just give you a little example of how it happens. Last Sunday after the second service, Todd, one of our prayer team members, he comes back. We meet back here to pray just for the third service. And he comes in. He says, yes, she got saved like that. And here's a woman who a Catholic, nominal Catholic who'd been brought to church by a friend, been witnessing to her for who knows how long. And I remember what I preached on. And and she was in tears at the end. And her friend said, would you like to go pray with one of the pastors or the prayer team? Yes, I would. So she comes up. She prays. She professes faith. And now she's got the connection with the woman in our church. And so that's what we're doing. It's not, I mean, I don't, I'm not on a crusade against, I would never write a book like uh, The Invitation System, who shot it down. Who's that? He's my good friend, Ian Murray. Was it Ian Murray or, no, the other British guy. Was it Ian wrote that? I would never do that. I got bigger fish to fry. Than to than to take pot shots at the at the way Southern Baptists do invitations, but I I do take the shots. I just wouldn't write a whole book. <laughs> Another one over here. Yeah, six minutes. Um, I've been reading the Swans Are Not Silent, and I was wondering how do you reconcile? And I don't remember you dealing it with it much in the the um, the hidden smile of God about. Christian hedonism and, and, and great Christian saints who've struggled their whole life with depression. William Cooper. Um, I have no single standard of intensity or consistency or exuberance or personality for what a passion for Jesus should look like. You are wired in this room so differently. Your personalities are all over the map. I serve in Scandinavia where Arnie who's probably 65 now, watched his son kick the field goal in a championship game that set a record for the state from 52 yards out in college. And everybody went wild. And he went... (laughs) He told me that. One time after a sermon, when I was pleading with people to be a little more emotionally engaged, he just looked at me and he said, Pastor John, you've got to understand something. <laughs> when my son kicked the field goal that set the state record that holds to this day, I went like this. That's as enthusiastic as I will ever get. <laughs> I love Arnie to death. <laughs> 
love his son. His son's pretty much like him. <laughs> and I guess it's because his dad was like that too. Those were hard times. Hard times. I've learned a lot from the old folks in our church who are not exuberant. They had hard times. When they sang in worship, it wasn't these upbeat, happy songs. It was, we're barely making it. Is there a sovereign God who can get us through one more week of pain? And, uh, and their whole ethos was one of more deep-rooted, settled, God is good. God, get us through. But not a lot of, you know. That, that, that is bred in part by how, how good things are for us in America these days. You, can't, you sort of have the leisure to turn a worship service into a, a celebrative moment. But if, if, if you come into church, well, for example, the, the, the night after the calamity, I said to Chuck, our worship leader, you've got to get this right tonight, Chuck. You've got to get this right. We will not sing the upbeat. There will be no drums tonight. We have drums almost every Sunday. There will, I said, we were not going to do that tonight. We are weeping tonight. There's a kind of music and a kind of demeanor. Well, it was much more like that, I think, consistently. And so you have people who grew up in homes, who grew up in eras where the expressions of emotion are so different. And so now, back to the depression question. I'm not about to look out on my church and pass judgment. Okay, you're without emotion and you're without emotion and you're without emotion. I'm married to a non-emotional person. You know, if you put female and male on a scale and list all the things, you know what? In my family, I'm the female and she's the male. So I'm always got Noel in my mind when I'm criticizing people. This counts for my wife. And I know my wife. I know what she'd lay her life down for. And I know what she cannot do in worship. And so on. So that's the first kind of outward thing. With regard to real live clinical depression, I think there are ambiguities there that nobody knows. There are physical components, family components, circumstantial components, Emotional components, spiritual components, demonic components, and it takes an incredibly insightful community of faith around a person to help them sort that through, live it through, fight it through, and get as much out of it as they can. And some people like William Cooper never rise very high. And I I don't think we should despair. John Newton never gave up on William Cooper. William Cooper sat in his house for, what, how many years? 17 years or something like that. Never went to church. About 300 yards from the church. John Newton visited him every day. Loved him to Jesus. Tried to keep him, tried to commit suicide three times. Just kept loving him. Never assumed. Never assumed the guy was reprobate. And so I just think we ought to give people the benefit of the doubt if they're really struggling with that kind of thing and hope. I had one man in my church, eight years in depression. He was kind of depressed that if this was the bathroom door, he was like a zombie for eight years. His wife, would he'd follow her around everywhere. She'd walk into the bathroom. He'd walk up to the bathroom door like this. Just stand there. When she came out, he'd follow her this way. Eight years, he'd come sit in the church. And he was healed. <laughs> 
It came out of it by memorizing Scripture. Now, he tried to memorize Scripture before. It was just God's time. That's all I could say. It was just God's time. He'd been through every possible clinical thing. He'd been through every possible medication. He'd been through everything. It just wasn't, I don't know. Maybe his body changed. Maybe his wife's attitude changed. Maybe he started memorizing the right verses. Maybe, who knows? He just got well. And so I don't think anybody in those eight years should have said, Bob's lost. Bob, Bob can't get any victory here, so God, Bob's lost. There are reasons why we have our down seasons, and some people, and we're out of, we're out of time. And we really should stop because i got an hour and a half to get ready for tonight. So I'm going to run, if that's okay, uh, instead of hanging out at the front. And then when it's over tonight, I have no place to go, and I will hang out here. So if you need to come up and talk. Should I? Peter, what should I do? Push close and send people away? Okay. Let me pray, Ross, and we'll, we'll let them go. Father in heaven, these are weighty, weighty things. There probably are people in this room right now who are, who are depressed and on medication and wondering how to take what I've said and make it real in their lives. I pray that they would take heart, that you mean to be patient with them and to love them up to yourself and out of their condition in due time and that you have gifts for them. Like one great old Puritan said, the Lord keeps his sweetest wine in the cellar of suffering. And so, God, I pray that you'd be sweet to them. And though it may not look from the outside like they are tasting much, may they taste the best of your grace. I ask in Jesus' name.